Hi, and welcome to What Happens Next. I'm Dr. Susan Carland. This is part two and our final episode looking at Indigenous incarceration in Australia. In our previous episode, we looked at the major contributing factors causing such a disproportionate representation of Australia's Indigenous population in our prison system. In this episode, we speak to our experts about what needs to be done to address this issue. We speak again to Jacinta Elston from Monash University, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island human rights lawyer Mina Singh and criminologist Dr Kate Burns. Hi, I'm Dr Kate Burns. I'm a lecturer in criminology at Monash University. What do you see as some of the solutions? What's the way forward? We've 30 years have gone and things aren't great. If you could press the reset button now, yep. what would you do? So I think... Definitely, um, I think we have issues about self-determination and listening to Indigenous Australians. Um, we know that the the people most impacted by over-incarceration do not have a seat at the table. They're not the decision makers at the moment. So there's something about self-determination, listening. Um, but also um, there is some policy changes that could occur that would make a big difference already. And one of those is about raising the age of criminal responsibility. What is that at the moment? So at the moment, um, the age of criminal responsibility is 10. Mm. So that means children as young as 10 can be incarcerated. And we know that last year um, over 600 children aged 10 to 13 were incarcerated. And what percentage of those would have been Indigenous children? So 60% of those mm. children were, were Indigenous. And we know that all the children in the Northern Territory that were incarcerated were Indigenous. So by raising the age of criminal responsibility and, and giving communities the um, empowerment to actually implement programs, they would be able to get those children, say if they are doing silly things, mucking about, actually trying to get them on the right track. But we know that the younger uh, children are uh, uh, involved in the criminal justice system and in particular the younger they are incarcerated, the more likely they are to reoffend, the more likely they are to reoffend violently uh, and the more likely they are to enter the adult criminal justice system. So if we can stop that at the start, that would be a really really a good way of approaching it. I can't get past this idea of a 10-year-old in jail. Yeah. 10 is so little. It, it's a very yeah. young child. Yeah. And the thought of a 10-year-old being alone in prison without their parents or yeah. guardians with them and the traumatising effect that would have is horrifying. Is Australia unusual in sending such young children to jail? Uh, well, no, unfortunately, but the, it is, there is a massive push from other countries and particularly the UN uh, has been saying that we, we need to raise the age. A lot of countries are raising the age. What would the UN say the minimum age should be? Uh, they say 14. That's still pretty young. It's st- I have it, a 14-year-old. They do a lot of dumb stuff. <laughs> well, I think that, well, at 10, they're like, I, it's still, 14 is still still young. Yeah. It is still as young. And we know actually that, that that our brains don't stop developing till they're 25. That's what I was going to say. Like if you think about the young children at 10 and, you know, they find it very difficult to anticipate the outcomes of the things they do. 
And then we also know teenage brains, particularly teenage boy brains, are primed for risk-taking behaviours. Yep. So it's, it's difficult to consider that we are putting young children or young people in prison for something that they don't have full control over yet. Yes, exactly. And so I think that's why there is this big push from so many advocates and it's not, it's lawyers, it's doctors, um, you know, everyone is really pushing and there's a huge campaign about pushing about raging, raising the age because 10 is um, so young that, I, I mean, they're assuming that a 10-year-old knows what they're doing is criminal. Yeah. And so without looking at maybe why that 10-year-old might be acting the way they are, um, and so, and yes, 14 is still so, so young. It's actually, it, it's inconceivable that children that age are being incarcerated. Yeah, my 14-year-old still needs me to remind him to get a jumper. Yep, exactly. So, And it also, once once kids have been incarcerated, their life chances and, and um, the rest of their future is, is really reduced because of the stigma of incarceration, because of the trauma um, and the way that the criminal justice system treats children um, and the way that as a society we treat people that have been incarcerated. Hi, my name's Meena Singh. I'm a Yorta Yorta, an Indian woman, and I am the legal director at the Human Rights Law Centre, heading up our work for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's rights. If you could wave a magic wand now and change just three things about this issue, I'm sure there's many more than three. We, we know the, the Royal Commission into Indigenous Deaths in Custody had hundreds of recommendations, but if you could just change your top three things in this issue, what would you change and how would you do it? I would immediately have the age of criminal responsibility raised from 10 years old to 14 years of age. Yeah, that would be my first big thing, my first wave of the magic wand. Um, the second would be around far, far greater investment into um into Aboriginal lives, into the things that make communities strong. So in uh, investment in homes, building more homes and prisons, investment in education, in, uh, in investment in health, in, in mental health and well-being. Um, you know, these are the things that keep community safe. You know, if you think about, you know, when I reflect on my own life and, you know, the the things that kept me safe, it was things like a solid uninterrupted education. It was staying with my family. It would, it, it was, you know, the things that most of us take for granted, um, but so many people deal with and, and live with and live with the trauma with. Um, and then I guess the third thing, this is really tough because now I've just got to choose one, but um, all of this has to happen in a much broader context of understanding and truly coming to terms with Australia's history and how Aboriginal people have been forced to live, I guess, a parallel life alongside non-Aboriginal people and to the expense of, of the advancement and the benefit of, of non-Aboriginal people. Um, you know, this country is built on stolen Aboriginal land and we need to understand understand what that means 
from a historical perspective, but also the impacts now and truly have a, a, a you know, a, a, I want to say truth telling because in Victoria, we've obviously had announced the, the Uruk um, uh, Justice Commission, which is focused on justice and truth telling, um, you know, see, um, see how we properly implement that you know but that requires real leadership from the top it requires you know vision and empathy and understanding Jacinta Elston discusses the impacts of the carceral system on Indigenous communities and what she's learned from years of working in policy and research with state and federal governments and on the ground in community organisations about what changes are needed to shift the needle on this complex issue. How do we change this in society? I know there's lots of work going on in school curriculum and, you know, in, in schools around the country. Some of it is a little bit tokenistic and um, reconciliation plans and things like that. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the role that they play, but they you cannot hang everything off reconciliation plans and... Um, you know, having a welcome to country here and there and other things. You know, we've got huge and significant issues with out-of-home care for Indigenous kids. Those kids who go into the system often end up staying in systems. They certainly leave those systems vulnerable. Um, they are likely to leave those systems with vulnerable mental health issues if you go into your adulthood with um, vulnerable mental health, we know that that predisposes you to mental health issues across your life. Um, you know, what does it mean when we take a child away from a family? And, you know, again, it's National Reconciliation Week this week. Um, we've still got Aboriginal kids getting taken away. The reconciliation, National Reconciliation Week and National Sorry Day yesterday that is about recognition of the bringing them home report. Um, and yet we've got more kids in out of home care than we probably did then. Um, we would have had kids getting taken away yesterday on National Sorry Day. Those kids were watched by other kids who saw them be taken away from their families. Um, you know, and I'm thinking particularly of a family in Queensland right now who a couple of days ago had children taken away and we've seen it streaming on social media. What does it mean for the black-white relationships between that community and the police or, um, you know, the non-Indigenous workers who accompanied the police who came from the Department of Children and, and other um, agencies to take those kids away? How much respect does anybody in that community now have for white people? They didn't have it before because this has been a generational thing. And so, you know, this is our um, grandfathers, our grandmothers. I once did, I did the count recently. And I think I would have to go back eight generations in my family, in my Aboriginal family, I'd have to go back eight generations to find an Aboriginal person who hasn't been tra traumatised at the hands of a settler. And that's what we're dealing with. It does require systematic change and it does require us to have the bravery. And how do we get that narrative out into the community so there is support? There are also issues, and we see that all around Australia, about bail and that this is the bail laws have been tightened across all jurisdictions. Criminologist Dr Kate Burns sees issues surrounding our bail laws that need to be addressed. 
These laws, she says, are having an impact on women and children. This is meaning that um, lots of people are remanded um, for many for a very, very long time. Um, and sometimes they're remanded for longer than they would have been sentenced, you know, anyway. So remand is when you've been charged with something, but you're waiting for your court date to come up. And so you have to stay in prison waiting for your court date. So you haven't actually been convicted of anything yet. Exactly. And you may be there for months. Yes. You can be there for months or years. Mm. And so... And then you could be found innocent. Yes, correct. And so there is an issue about that and we know that a recent death in custody in Victoria was a woman that was on remand. So um, there, there is an issue there and that and so bail laws could be uh, changed because we know over the past few years bail laws have been tightened and part of that was in response to some particular events that happened in the community and it was about stopping violent men offending when they're on bail. But what's happened is that at the the people that it's impacting mostly, it's mostly women, uh, low-level offending. And so Indigenous women are the um, highest, the, the fastest growing population in, in prison all over Australia. If nothing else, if we just think about the economic costs of incarceration and recidivism, which is when people uh, are repeat offenders, if we just look at this economically, why governments wouldn't want to address this? Yes, and I think that's a really good question. Um, it's interesting because the amount of money that we as a nation spend on prisons is phenomenal. It is absolutely huge. Um, there has been a big push um, overseas actually and I think particularly in jurisdictions like the US and the UK, which is looking at concepts like justice reinvestment, which is when you take a portion of the corrections budget and you reinvest it into um, communities that have high incarceration rates. Um, because, as we discussed earlier, the solutions to um, incarceration are in healthcare and housing and, and all the, these um, other issues. And so, and actually, these other jurisdictions have shown that the economic argument does work quite well when you can say, you're spending this much on prisons. If you take a tiny bit of that, invest it in the community, you can actually start making change. Um, there's been um, some programs in Australia that have used this approach, um, and it is looking quite promising in some in, in some places. Um, there is also just the um, the issue of making sure that it is purely community led, because there is a risk that these types of programs, although they're within the community, they can further entrench, say, police in um, in the lives of the community. Um, but it is just, uh, but it is a promising concept that perhaps um, might show that actually this economic argument is saying prisons cost so much and actually don't make the community safer. So let's take just a small portion of that and put it into the communities and just see what kind of results we have. We know prisons don't work. We know that it does not um, stop reoffending. Uh, we know that it doesn't make the community safer and actually causes a lot of harm and trauma. So how do we, instead of having that as the solution to offending, look to the communities um, and invest in communities? So actually we don't need to be then having this the end result. Can you tell us about a, a community-led initiative that you know of that's seems to be um, producing some really positive results. 
Yeah, so I think we're seeing, I mean, all over Australia we're seeing um, these types of of programs and they are community-led and so a lot of them actually do really well with some extra funding. But we're seeing, so for example, in Alice Springs there's a program that um, for for young kids to get them into skateboarding and so to give them something to do but also to give them um, really positive role models and, and, and adults you know, around them that are sort of showing, you know, how you can um, have fun in a really, you know, in a physical way, in a fun way, um, but also that can be like a really productive mm. way. And and so um, programs like that have shown to be really good because the kids actually gives them something to do and it gives them something to strive for. And so those sort of programs have actually shown, you know, that the kids aren't sort of going out and they're not offending because they're sort of concentrated on doing um, this, you know, these types of fun activities. What advice would you give to someone who's sitting at home that wants to help in this regard? What should they do? I think it's a really good question and it's a really tough question in some ways. We need to support First Nations-led organisations. For the last 30 years there have been telling us, the community, what needs to be done to address this issue. So we need to be actually listening. But also um, as non-Indigenous people, we need to sit with these uncomfortable conversations. And they will be uncomfortable, um, but through these uncomfortable conversations, change can really happen. I asked Jacinta Elston for advice on what individuals can do to help drive systemic change. Systematic problems obviously require systematic change. How can the individual listening at home to this podcast help to participate in that without feeling like I'm just one person, what can I do? The most immediate thing I think anybody could do right now, this week, this this month, this year, um, pull out your local member's email account. Send them an email and say, I just want to let you know I support the government doing something about reducing Indigenous incarceration. I support the government doing something about stopping black deaths in custody. I support the government doing something about stopping the removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids from their families. Let's start there with some localised action, something that we could do. If every member of parliament, state and federally, got emails this week that said we want to see it stopped and it's coming from people in their jurisdictions, that might help to shift and change some of it. Um, If all of a sudden the people in Camberwell started to, you know, um, email their local member, uh, who actually this probably isn't even on their radar, or the people in Peninsula, uh, Morningtonshire, Brighton, Torquay, uh, wherever you are um, around the country, um, email your local member. When you go to an event with a local member that's there and you get an opportunity to sit beside them or a local leader, um, say, you know, by the way, I support us doing something about this, this generation, this decade, not making a change that um, will come too late. mean, you know, saying sorry doesn't mean you know, for Reconciliation Week, for any of this, um, for Black Lives Matter, all of that, saying sorry is not enough. We've got to fix the system. 
Um, and we've got have the community behind us, the whole community, Australian community, behind us to call for that. Yeah. We have to do sorry. We have to do sorry. We can't just say sorry and then not do anything. And we've got to, as the community, as the populace who votes for our government, we've got to give the government the mandate to do it. We've got to tell them it's important to us for the sort of country that we want to be. Um, we can't just let this be something that they themselves have a, their own opinion about. They're there to represent us and what we want as a society for our children, for the people that, you know, we're growing into the next generations. Um, you know, you could apply this principle to a whole range of issues today. Um, violence against women. What are we doing about that? Who's perpetrating the violence against women? Why do we call it violence against women? Why aren't we calling it violence perpetrated by men? Mm. Why is women even in the title of it? And so we're scapegoating by not calling it out in the way that it needs to be called out, I think. So um, climate change, there's a whole lot of areas where our politicians won't do anything unless they think it's important to us. And that requires us to take five minutes out of our day. Find the email address for your local member and send them an email. I mean, that's, you know, that's a starting point. There must be other things you could do, but that's a good starting point. And finally, Mina Singh on whether the media too can play a role in supporting systemic change in this area. Yeah, I think um, I think the media has a huge role to play in terms of telling our stories, um, in terms of supporting us to tell our stories um, of not just telling the stories of, of of hardship or but that's an important part of the equation, but seeing Aboriginal people as part of the community and seeing us as people who have the, you know, want the same things for the, our kids and our families and our futures that anyone else wants, you know. So, um, you know, we hardly ever see Aboriginal people on mainstream media unless we're, uh, you know, the only places we see us are on ABC or in ITV or SBS those sorts of spaces, um, we need to see, you know, um, we need to have our stories given honour and have our, have our history raised more and more. Um, yeah, I think media has a long way to play, yeah. Mina Singh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Raising the age of criminal responsibility, self-determination, listening to Indigenous communities and addressing the history of systemic bias and intergenerational trauma are some important ways to address the ongoing issues surrounding Indigenous incarceration in Australia. It's not an easy solution. It rarely is. But it's going to take strong political will and leadership if things are ever going to change. That concludes our second and final episode on Indigenous incarceration. A big thank you to all our guests and, as always, more information on what we talked about today can be found in the show notes. Next week, we will be back with a brand new topic to unpack and explore on what happens next.